You know, we're in a study in Philippians, and as Andrew even alluded to, and we're in the middle of the book. So if you have your Bibles, be finding Philippians. We'll be there in a moment. But we've been studying this whole concept of having joy despite or in spite, I don't know what you want to say, of our circumstances. So again, through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. I hope you can sing it from your heart. I hope whenever you sing it, you'll actually even replay events in your life, snapshots of your life where it's like, okay, yes, there was a time, that was that time, and there was that situation, there was that relationship, there was that job, and you can go, okay, God, you got me through that. Thank you, God. Now the storm I'm in now, I'm trusting you will do the same. And that's, that's where it's, it's kind of hard. And sometimes in those storms, in those situations, we lose our joy. Our joy vanishes, it goes away. And again, some people question whether that's joy or is that happiness. Happiness comes from things that happen to us. Joy should be a little bit more sustainable in life and, and, and enduring through the storms of life. But let's just camp on this concept of joy for a little bit. Because we're going to find today in the very first verse, in the very first uh, uh, chapter uh, three, we're going to find where Paul's going to call us again as he does every chapter of Philippians. It's the theme of the whole book is to rejoice and to rejoice in the Lord. And he's going to say it again. He's going to say it again because you didn't hear it again. He's going to say it again. And he's going to say it today as we kick it off. And so here's what I want us to zero in on, on this whole joy concept. Circumstance is good, circumstance is bad. You like where you live, you don't like where you live, you like your job, you don't like your job, you like your kids, you don't like your kids, whatever the case may be. Joy, is it an elusive dream or is it a present reality? Is it something that you keep striving for, grabbing for, lunging for, but it's just like a mirage on the sunrise, on the sun, on the horizon that you're never, ever quite there. You're never, ever quite satisfied. You're never, ever happy with this or with that. There's always some, and this joy becomes just this dream that keeps vanishing before you. Or is it something that And you probably have met people like these, and I will say that this is not necessarily the majority. The people who, when they're going through something, and you're going, man, what are you smoking? What what are you doing, man? Because there's something about you that you're you're rolling with it. There's a joy. You're not fake. I'm not talking about fake stuff. I'm not talking about the old cheesy Christian statements, well, God's in control, but you don't believe he's in control. And, you know, but you just say it because that's what you're supposed to say. I'm talking about there's just something that, you know what, you just believe that it's God, God's got his hand on it. God's in it. And you can sleep at night without having to have all this extra help to sleep. And you can go throughout the day without having to have all these chemicals in your body. You, can, you just are able to sustain through this amazing present reality of joy. I hope that you're the second person. I hope that if you're not there, that we might untap into what we're going to look at today is more or less Paul's, what some people have called Paul's autobiography, right in the middle of Philippians. We're going to get into Paul's autobiography and looking at his life, and we're going to understand what it is out there about Paul that he learned in how to tap into this joy. Because remember, he's writing this from prison, and he's telling the church in freedom In Philippi, he's telling them to rejoice. Now, it shouldn't be the other way around unless you are living in a present reality of joy. Now, see, what happens is when we don't have joy, we become drug addicts. 
And I'm not talking about the, the bad drugs, okay? Yes, that's one of the reasons people do bad drugs is they're missing something deep down inside of them. The chemical makeup, the meth, the marijuana, all that kind of stuff. We do those things because we're trying to fill something. We're not quite happy. We're too stressed out. Or all this kind of stuff is what we, we will do. And I'm not going to talk about the illegal stuff. Let's talk about the legal stuff. Okay, the legal stuff of like the chemical. Okay, there's joy chasers out there. One of those would be a chemical chasing. Again, there's, the, there's the, the wrong kind, but then let's talk about just the, the natural kind, the kind that God gave us, dopamine. It's a, it's a brain chemical. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stimulus in the brain that is released whenever we go into moments of pleasure and, and excitement. This dopamine, which is, by the way, where we get the word dope from, is from dopamine. It's released into the brain, and we feel this warm, soothing sensation of happiness. And because we have this moment of dopamine in our life, then we feel good and we like it and we want more of it. And so we become addicted to it. You can talk about people getting addicted to adrenaline, adrenaline, adrenaline addicts, okay? These are other chemicals that we get addicted to that we can't live without. But as we, as we do that, what happens is then we chase the, the high or the dopamine in our life and it can lead us to where we're constantly chasing after joy or chasing after some sense of warmth and satisfaction about life. Be careful because here's what happens. We try to, here's our sorrows, here's our pains, here's all the disappointments of life. Here's all the things that life didn't deal us in even a uh, 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 happy, happy uh, place in life. And then here's our dopamine levels. What we want to do, we will raise our dopamine levels to drown out the problems, to fix the problems. We'll change jobs, relationships, everything, so we can get something new in our life, so it'll give us a new sense of, of joy and satisfaction. Here's the, here's, the, here's the danger, is the dopamine will go down. But it's amazing. Sorrows have a tendency to be able to swim. We cannot drown out our sorrows. They come back. And sometimes they come back with great vengeance and regret and shame that are attached themselves to it. Here's another joy chaser substitute out there, sensual. Because when we're not being satisfied over here, we play over here. And we go to a sensual element of life that's out there that's so rampant, it's incredible. I was at the International Mission Board this past week and talking with some of the mission leadership on the board, and literally they no longer ask missionaries, have you looked at porn? They ask them, what is the level of your porn problem? They go, oh, it's bad on the missionaries. Yeah, they're people. Just like many of the people that you work with, live with, and are. And we end up chasing this stuff out there. We know oh, it's just me and the screen. Nobody else is watching. It's just me and the screen. And it's innocent. It's just between me and these pixels on the screen. Listen, we could spend a whole day talking about the other person on the other side of the screen and the victimization and the, and, the, and the wrongness on that side. But let's just talk about it on this side. What happens is a remapping of your brain starts happening because you get this dopamine feel from this, uh, from this stimulation of watching this, this screen and watching the pornography and watching this over here, that you will literally lose interest in the one that you gave yourself to, that you pledged yourself to, that you honored, that you said to God and God alone, I am going to be for this person and this person alone, because you've now wired your brain to get stimulation off of a screen. 
get that dopamine off the off of uh, off of the pixels. Be careful of chasing joy through the sensual. Be careful of chasing joy through the material. It's another way we chase after joy. You know, we, we, we like shiny, we like new, we like bright, we like, we like faster, we like the, the latest gadgets and, and whatever. And I'm going to step on the front of this, uh, of this example and just say, in the McDaniel household, I am the guilty one. I am the one in the McDaniel household that can buy things off of an impulse, off of just glancing at it on the screen. Oh, I need to buy that. And these little things where you can just uh, order it so quickly and everything's logged in, the memories and the passwords and the thumbprint, and boom, it's uh, in the mail coming your way. Lori will look at something five times, and I will have bought it ten times the amount of time it takes her to look at it five times. And if I'm the one that uh, that doesn't struggle with you know, the graven image of the, the prophet of Baal, made out of gold. I study, I, I struggle with the graven image of, made out of plastic and that, uh, that, that credit card that if you're not careful is the graven image that you will go. But all, all, the whole reason is that little drip of dopamine that I'll get, that drug, that, that, that satisfaction, that, that sense of, ooh, I get something new, shiny, bright, and, and I want it, and I, and I get to wear it. And you know, you guys in the marketing world, you do it to me, okay? It's your fault. It's not my fault. Um, but here's the, you know, some of some of it like this money's like salt water. The more you drink, the more you want. And I, I would say that it's about material stuff. And listen, these are all joy chasers that we chase after joy, longing for that, that hope, that satisfaction, that sense of, that dope in our, in our, in our life, that we'll find some sense of joy. And there's nothing wrong with going after longing for happiness. Okay. I think John Piper said it like this and said it very well giving us the reality is that the longing to be happy is a universal human experience. It is good and it is not sinful. So it is not wrong to long to be happy, to long to have joy in your life. That's not wrong. It's where you go and find it. So let me give you one more, one more way we'll chase joy and we should chase joy and that's in the spiritual. We need to look at all the others as an inferior to this one. And if you hold the, the presupposition that I hold today, that I am a spiritual being who just is right now existing in an earthly physical form, then you would believe, as many people believe, that they are a physical form and maybe there's a spirit out there. I believe that I'm a spiritual being and that one of these days my physical body is going to die, but my spirit will live on and on and on forever and ever. Amen. And here's what the reality is. I've got to make sure my spirit is whole, is complete, is full has joy in it, and then all the physical will take care of itself. Then all the physical the satisfactions out there will be there, even if I don't get everything that I want, even if things don't work out. And so here's the, here's the blank on your first, in, in your notes there. Joy is generated, and I would say sustained through Jesus. Okay, now you knew you had to come to church and hear Jesus is the answer to everything, Right? Okay, Jesus is the answer. I'm going to just say that. I'm going to believe that because what he says in John 10, that he came to give us life and to give it more abundantly, to give it fully, completely. I believe that Jesus is the whole deal. If I tap in, if I abide in, as John 15 says, if I am connected to Jesus and he is my life source, then I am going to find this amazing sense of, call it warmth, call it satisfaction, call it joy, call it completeness. I'm going to have that through Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to have this completeness through him. And it's, it's what he came for, to give us life and to give it in its most abundant, full, and complete form. Now, in John 16, he doesn't say it's all going to be peaches and cream out there. He says, I have told you these things so that, you, so that in me, in me, Jesus, you may have peace. There's no doubt joy and peace would be kissing cousins or heads and tails of the same coin. You will have suffering in this world. Wow, shouldn't that take you away from your joy? Shouldn't that take you away from your peace? What Jesus is saying here is, no, in me, you will be able to go through suffering. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, too. You're going to go through suffering. You're going to go through pain. You're going to go through loss. You're going to go through frustration. But I can still be very present in that. Very real. As if I was physically there, you will sense that I am there. You will know that I am there. So be courageous. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. There's not a problem that Jesus hasn't or can't or won't conquer in us or through us if we are abiding in him, again, John 15, or if we are connected to him or if he is our source of joy, if he is who we are grafted into. Now, Let's go back to Philippians chapter 3. It's where we're going to be today. We're right in the middle of the letter now. We're going to finish it up by the end of this month, but, but we're right at the, in the middle of the letter. So if, if Paul were to fold it up the letter, roll it up the letter, well, however he sent the letter off, if you were to open it up and lay it out, then chapter 3 is kind of where it is, is, in, is in the middle. And he starts it off. And as you look at, in fact, if you look at this, uh, this passage, you find him really giving us a very good autobiography of his life. He walks us through his past life, his present life, and his future life. And each one of those, he talks about how, let's, let's start here, let's start. So I said, I count it all joy. Okay. I count my life. And he talks about how he valued and how he assessed and where he placed the big rocks in the jar first and then the little rocks where he where he put where he put his greatest value is here but then he talks about his present okay now i want to encourage you in this i'm not going to get there this week i'm going to encourage you to go there this week in your own personal study i'm going to read one verse and it's going to talk about okay now i press on and then he kind of finishes it by i look he talks about looking ahead and so you just kind of look through Paul's life. But why, why am I taking an entire Sunday to talk about his past? Why should I talk about his present? Why should I talk about his future? Because I don't think you can go forward effectively. I don't think you can live fully in, alive in the present until you have dealt with the past. Sometimes you have to go backward before you can go forward. Now, I hear people say this all along. Anytime I say that, oh, I don't want to focus on the past. I just want to focus on the future. Sometimes you've got to go back and unpack and refix and undo and realign and reset from some things that you got off Kelter in the very beginning. And you've been building your life off of that poor foundation. Great song, Andrew. Off that not the cornerstone of Jesus. And you got to go back to the foundation. And build out from there. So in that, in light of that, let's look at chapter 3, verse 1, where he starts it off by saying, finally. Now, like any preacher, when they say finally, ignore it, okay? Because <laughs> he's still got uh, two more chapters, okay? 
Finally, my brothers, rejoice. There's the word. He brings him back to joy. Rejoice where? Where you get your joy from? You get your joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me. And, by the way, it's helpful for you. So Paul is looking back on his life. Listen, it's not a problem for me to go back and revisit my, my, my story, okay? There's not a problem with that. In fact, if I go back and tell you my story, it will actually be a benefit to you. So let's unpack the past and let's move forward into the future. But as we unpack the past, let's learn from it. Let's see how we can all grow from it. And so uh, let's skip on down to um, uh, verse uh, 3. It says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now he tells us, don't put confidence in the flesh. That's not what you need to focus on, okay? But then he turns right around. And he talks about how you can put confidence in the flesh. So don't get lost in this. The command, the instruction is don't get, don't get cocky with your, in, your, uh, in yourself. Don't, don't think you're somebody big and special. Don't think, uh, no, no, no. Stop with that. And let's not put confidence in ourselves. Though I myself have reason for confidence. <laughs> Let me spin it around here. If anybody's got confidence, I got confidence. If anybody can be boastful, I can be boastful. If anybody can be proud, I can be proud. If anybody can look at their accomplishments, I can look at my accomplishments. I want to talk today about ways that we're going to safeguard our joy. Let me give you the number one way. And we've got to be careful with this. We've got to safeguard our joy by this. Being aware, being aware of the failure of success. Being aware of the failure of success. Paul says, we're not going to put confidence in the flesh. Oh, but by the way, if anybody could put confidence in the flesh, that's me. All right? If anybody can be boastful, that's me. And I want to say this, that your greatest success in life may end up becoming your greatest failure. If you're not careful what you're looking at and what you're documenting in your resumes and what you're looking in the mirror and saying all your accomplishments, you may wake up one day. In fact, many people do wake up one day, and I don't know when it's going to happen for you, but it wakes up, a lot of people wake up. It's in church. It's at home. They're looking in the mirror. They're looking at their 401Ks. They're looking in retirement, and they look back at their life. Sometimes they wake up and they go, oh, my gosh, I have been so successful, but I have failed. I'm going to date myself. Boris Becker was uh, around playing tennis when I was uh, growing up. And I can remember after winning two, two Wimbledons that he was contemplating suicide. You can read about authors. Author Jack Higgins, renowned author of The, the Eagle Has Landed. In his own words, he said this. He says, when you get to the top, there's nothing there. Here's a guy on the top of the rung on the ladders of authors, and when you get to the top, there's nothing there. It's MacDonald who said this. He said, without Christ, a man must fail miserably or succeed even more miserably. Without Christ, you will fail miserably or you will succeed even more miserably. New York Times had an article of, about a person in the dot-com era. Her, her name was Diane Knorr, and she was a former dot-com executive, and she made all this money in the dot-com age. And she, her goal was by the time she was 49 that she would be making six figures, okay? 
But by 49 was her goal. By 35, she was already making six figures, well into the six figures. She got to that point of success, and in her own words, reported in the New York Times, she said, nothing happened. <laughs> no balloons dropped. That's when I really became aware of that hollow feeling. I want you to hang on to those words, hollow feeling, because some of you guys are up and comers. Some of you guys are climbing faster than, than the, the speed of sound. Some of you guys are, are movers and shakers. Beware that you might just get to the top and find out just how hollow it is. I think all of us have seen and experienced people in our life that are incredibly, incredibly wealthy, but incredibly miserable in their wealth. And you think, okay, what's it, how much more do I have to take to buy the satisfaction that I need? And again, the success of our life may become the greatest failure of our souls. Can I say that again? The success of our life may become the greatest failure of our soul. If our soul isn't whole, isn't complete, then all the success and all the accomplishments of this world will not matter. Some of you are going, man, I would sure like to try it. You know, give me six figures and I'll try to be happy. I'll, I'll surely find happiness. Every study that's ever been done on this, I should have pulled one up, has said everybody who says they're going to make, they, they can make a little bit more money, they'd be happy. It's never if I made less. It's never I'm happy enough in what I've got. It's always more. Let's go back to Paul. Paul said, if anybody can make, have confidence, it's myself. If anybody can be proud, it's myself. And now what he does is he begins to lift his resume here. He says, and he goes in verse 5, and I'll break this down in a moment. He was circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, uh, as, a, as, a, as of the law. He was a Pharisee as, as to zeal. Again, he's putting qualifiers. As to a Hebrew, I was the Hebrew of a Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, I was blameless. He qualifies everything that he does. He says, listen, I was the king of the hill. I had it made. I, I, if you look in in my world, in my context, and some of y'all have your own little worlds, your own little context, I was on the top. And breaking it down like this, again, just so you can get a better visual of it. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. What was he saying? He said, I was born a Hebrew. I wasn't, I wasn't converted into Judaism. I was a Hebrew Jewish born boy because eight days in, I was getting circumcised in the temple. It, 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 I'm, I am I am Jewish through and through. I know, by the way, I have I even know my ancestry. I went on ancestries.com and I go all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin. That was funny. Ancestries.com wasn't around then. Okay, networked, networked. I'm a Pharisee. Now again, you got to understand what that rank and file of that is. Is you're not just a Pharisee because you sign up to be a Pharisee. You're a Pharisee because you are an instructor of the law. You're you are you are. It's a, it's a good old boys club for sure. It's a, it's a it's a it's a place where they they not only believe in the Ten Commandments, they're going to put 613 other commandments on top of that to fulfill the Ten Commandments that God gave us. I mean, they were so stringent, but he was a he he was a Pharisee. 
zealous. You want to talk about how committed he was to his job? He was assigned the task to eradicate the church. Kill the church. So that's exactly what he starts doing. On the streets of Jerusalem, Stephen is stoned. And who is there overseeing the whole execution of Stephen? But it is none other than Saul of Tarsus, who will later become Paul. And then a moral guy. Guy, this, this guy is as straight as an arrow. He kept all 613 law, righteous, blameless under the law. He, he did it all. Everything about Paul's life, I want you to see this. Everything about Paul's life said he's righteous, he's good, he's right, everything's good about him. And what does Paul say? He says, listen, don't put confidence in that. If you're sitting here today and you're going, you know what? I go to this church. I give to this church. I serve in this church. I've gone on a global adventure. I don't know. And you just look at all that. And I, and I voted Republican. I voted for Trump or I didn't vote for Trump or whatever. You know, you can list off all the things you did right and, and all the, all the accomplishments of your life. And I've been married. So this many, stop it. No confidence in the flesh. I can't get there on my own. It's not what I did. It's nothing that I can do. It's, it's, it's not in me. I can't earn this. Let's talk about another guy. So we talk about Paul. Let me talk about Solomon. Solomon was born into David's family. David was an incredible uh, king. He was the greatest king Israel ever knew. But right behind him, shouldn't Solomon have been that guy? Solomon follows behind him after David has established this great country, a man after God's own heart, and he leaves him the wealth. He leaves him the, the, the throne. He leaves him this country in a great situation. He goes on, Solomon, and completes the building of the temple. It's this beautiful, ornate temple to this day. They've never been able to reproduce this temple in its magnitude. Solomon was wise King Solomon. Solomon was the king who, who, had, who asked God for wisdom and God gave it to him. And he was writing and he was an author and he was a king. And the Queen of Sheba comes and consults with him and other people come and consult him. He's a powerful individual. He's quite accomplished and he's pretty proud of it. His success becomes his failure. Beware that your success becomes your failure. I want us to look at Ecclesiastes. And then in the memoirs of, of Solomon, I want you to notice all the eyes. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body up. Basically, how to be happy, how to find joy. I searched. That's what I live for. With wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of the folly. That I, till I might see what was good for the children of, of man to be under uh, heaven during the a few days of life on earth. He said, I wanted to make sure I had accomplished and I had everything to make me happy in life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools in which to water the forest and the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and slaves that were born in my house. I had had also great possessions and herds and flocks, more than any had before me in Jerusalem. I am the wealthiest cat who's ever walked these streets. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures in the king's provinces. So it wasn't just where I was living. It was also the provinces beyond me. I got singers in both. So I had the best music in town. I had uh, both men and women and many concubines delight the sons of man. And I became great and surpassed all those before. And he mentions it twice. He's pretty arrogant, pretty sold on himself. He mentioned it in the last verse and now he's mentioned it again. He's the greatest ever in Jerusalem and also my wisdom remained with me. I never lost lost it. 
And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all the toil that was the reward for all my toil. Listen, all that he had done, all he had accomplished, he's the greatest that ever lived. He had all this wisdom, and he did everything to bring pleasure to himself. Now look at the end result, the net total of it all. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Hollow feeling. If we're not careful, we will bank our life on our successes, our faith on our successes, our walk with God on our successes. Stop it. Put no confidence in that. Number two, reassess your assets. What defines success for you? What are you storing up for yourself? What are you spending your time and energy and efforts? We've looked at Solomon. I don't need to repeat Solomon. You can see everything that he had done, but yet at the end of his life, he says it's all vain. Paul, what about Paul? You know, Paul said, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Jew. I'm a, I, I'm a Pharisee. I'm, I'm a, I do my job. I'm a zealous follower of God. Gets on the road to Damascus and he meets God. And he meets Jesus on that road. And Jesus wasn't a part of the equation. In fact, he wanted to eradicate all the Jesus followers. And then you go to verse 7, back in Philippians chapter 3. In verse 7, it says this, But whatever I gain, or whatever gain I had, gain, okay? Whatever I had in my accounts, whatever was on my spreadsheet, whatever I was valuing, whatever gain I had, I counted, I deducted, I erased, I subtracted, has loss for the sake of Christ. I entered in, some of y'all are accountants in the room, I entered into, a, uh, into my spreadsheet a new formula, a new equation, and all of a sudden, all the things that I had done over here on my big list of accomplishments, all of a sudden, I put a new equation in there. Subtract all that because it's nothing except for Christ. Christ becomes everything to him. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, in the message, paraphrases it like this. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. That might be a life verse for some people. All the things that I've lived my life for, strove, striven, strived, pick a word, whatever works for you, not. I am now about Christ. Verse 8, we're just going to unfold these as, as we come to them. Verse 8, indeed, I count. Use the accountant word again. Indeed, I count, just in case you didn't catch it the first time, everything as loss. Because, why, why? Because I found something that was far greater value. I found something of far greater worth. Far greater sustainable joy was brought to my life. Everything surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered loss. Of all things, and count them as rubbish. Now, 
Don't miss the word rubbish. It's not a British word for trash, okay? Rubbish, no. It's literally a word for excrement, feces. He said, I count it as horse hockey. Put your own word in there, okay? I, it's nothing, man. I've been living my life for this. <laughs> it's, it's horse hockey. It's nothing. I'm counting it all over here, and I am realizing this one thing, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Now, I just have a deep question for you in your heart. Where is your joy? And if you can't say that it is rooted in, built on, originates from Jesus Christ, then I beg you to stop the madness, get off the train, and reset today. And enter into something that will bring you a life of sustainable joy and completeness and wholeness through a personal relationship with Jesus. Because what I'm telling you today is there's a man named Saul of Tarsus who became Paul and he became a follower of Christ and it so revolutionized his life that everything that was on his spreadsheet before that was of value all of a sudden was erased to one thing, Christ and Christ alone. One thing, one thing only that I'm going to live my life for. What was, what was his secret sauce here? I would say it like this. It was an accounting. It was an accounting. Any accountants in the room? Raise your hand. Uh, there's none in our church. Okay. There was a few before. Accounting. Here, you learn how to count what really counts. And, y- you know, you've been loyal to a job for 20, 20 30 years. I met somebody in the gallery this morning who's been loyal to their job for 30 years, and yet they were saying to me, I don't know if tomorrow I will have a job. You can be loyal to something for a long time and then all of a sudden it not be loyal to you. You better figure out something that you're going to stake your life on. Learn to count what really counts. Um, Verse 8 and 9. I want to read it again. I want you to hear it clearly. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Notice the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Notice that he wants to gain Christ, to be found in him. Notice the relationship, not having a righteousness of my own. It's not about me that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, uh, uh, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Notice these words. His whole focus becomes about Christ. Christ Jesus, my Lord. Christ found in Him, faith in Christ, righteousness from God. His whole life value was built on Jesus. I was. I like to read. If you're around me any length of time, you'll know I'm reading something somewhere. I've always have. On my phone, I have a book with me in the car or something like that. A book I picked up, I uh, read, read some reviews in a magazine not too long ago, and I thought, oh, that's a good book. I downloaded it, and I've been reading it. It's called The Happiness Effect. I didn't plan on drawing from it for this series, but it just happened to be that I, I, I just happened to be. The Happiness Effect, the social media is driving a generation to appear perfect at any cost. 
I also, I like to read current events. I like to read current things to kind of make sure I'm current and everything is, 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 uh, is fresh and I'm speaking relevantly to our culture. But I also have developed the habit of I like to read from dead people. Okay, it may seem a little eerie, but I like to read from people that there's a lot of wisdom in years gone by. So right now I'm finishing up in the fifth chapter or the fifth book of Augustine's Confessions. 300 to 400 uh, AD is when this was written. And it's interesting because whenever you read the happiness effect, you read something in there where it's talking about how we are on the internet, on social media, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, all this kind of stuff. And by the way, Time Magazine said in March that adults are on it 10 hours and 39 seconds a day. Okay. We are obsessed with this baby. And in this study that was done, what makes us happy on social media? This is what makes us happy. When people like our photos, dopamine dips into our brain and we begin to get happy thoughts and warm thoughts when people like our photos. And if they share our photos, oh my gosh, that's like doubling our network in a matter of one photo. We're crazy. And the, 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 the entire book is talking about We get happy when somebody likes a photo. Happy. Reading Augustine. I got got to book five this week. Opened it up. First paragraph. Started reading. You know, here's one of the things I've uh, uh, learned in reading both these books at the same time. What was true in the 400 AD is also true in the 21st century is there's a longing in man's soul. There's a longing inside of us. There's a longing inside of us. What's that longing? Well, we're going to fill it with something. We're going to fill it with something. This is what Augustine said in book five, the very first words. Let me know you. This is his, his, his confessions or his journals to God. Let me know you. For you are the God who knows me. Let me recognize you as you have recognized me. You are the power of my soul. Come into it and make it fit for yourself so that you may have it and hold it without stain or wrinkle. This is my hope. I'm reading Augustine. I'm going, yes, Yes, I want, I want you, God. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. God, I want to count everything else as, as dung, as horse hockey, as, as rubbish. I, I just, nothing else matters but you, God, and I want you. The surpassing value, worth, of knowing Jesus. And let me say, I know it's so true. We lose it. And some of y'all once had a love for God, but you're just dried up. You've filled it up with a bunch of other stuff and you're wondering why the joy's not there. The best thing you could do is take out the trash and just let it be Jesus. Number three, 
we're going to safeguard the joy in our hearts and our lives. We've got to model our life after the Master. And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. In a matter of one month, let me read the, the, the news headlines. In a matter of one month, 40 Egyptian uh, churches were burned to the ground. House church leaders were uh, imprisoned in Iran. Eight, 80 Christians murdered in North Korea for merely owning a Bible. Believers nailed to the crosses in Syria. And in other months, people were beheaded two weeks ago in, in, in Cairo, Egypt. 28 believers were taken from a bus and shot in the streets because they were going to a place of worship. I am not saying by any stretch of the imagination that following Jesus is going to be easy, but I will tell you this without any hesitation or equivocation that following Jesus brings joy that is sustainable. And you can hear it in the very words of Paul when he picks it up in verse 9 and be found in him and having the righteousness of my own. No, I don't want my righteousness. It comes from the law. It didn't work. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends in faith, that I may know him. It comes back to that relationship that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and that I may share in his sufferings. It was Paul's prayer that he would literally be able to be counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ. Becoming like Him in His death. By any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Listen, when you follow Christ, it may mean isolation, it may mean humiliation, it may mean loss, but it will also mean that you're walking the way of Jesus. Luke 14, 33, Jesus said, None of you can be my disciples who does not give up. What in the, what's on the table for you? What's off the table that you're unwilling to give up? Listen, I can just say this. You're going to have to put it all on the table. All of it on the table. Because here's what will happen. If you hold one little part of your life off the table and everything else is on the table, then that's the part that God knows is an idol in your life. And that's also the part that Satan knows that he still has a stronghold in your life. Everything on the table. Galatians six seventeen says, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. There is this, 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 this game of Christianity that we play today that is like shoots and ladders or like candy cane land kind of game. Listen, no, we're not playing that kind of game. This is a call of duty quality where we are all in. And it's a call of duty, of living a life of, if it means sacrifice, it means sacrifice. If it means giving up, if it means suffering, I'll suffer. If it means doing with less so that others can have more, if, whatever. And there's a poem that, man, I tell you, I, I just can't, I can't get it out of my head. It's, and I'm not a poet, and I am not going to pretend to, to memorize, I have it all memorized, but I tell you, I, I just want to quote it to you, and I want you to think about it. It's a it's, it's a poem by Amy Carmichael. I'll just end here. And I just want you to think about your life. Listen to these words. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on side or hand? 
I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archer, spent, leaned against tree, left to die by ravaging beasts that compassed me. Hast thou no wound? No scar? No wound? No scar? Yet as the as the master shall the servant be, and blessed are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who hath not wound or scar? And I, I look at my life, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm pretty happy a middle-class American. I, I got it pretty easy. What am I willing, what am I unwilling to give up? the cause of Christ. I'll promise you this. Fully obedient multipliers following Jesus is absolutely nothing more and nothing less is what Jesus asks of us. Would you pray with me? Father, you're calling us. You have called us. To say yes. Not maybe, but to say yes. To whatever, whenever, however. God, may we not build our lives and end our lives with nothing more than a hollow empty shell. But may we learn to treasure the surpassing value of knowing 